The Titanic continues to fascinate people whether it's in books or documentaries or films. And sadly, it's still in the news today. What a lot of people don't realise is that the Titanic's sister ship is also on the ocean floor. She was sunk whilst acting as a hospital ship during the First World War. Her story is not just one of a maritime disaster. It sheds light on some of the forgotten campaigns in the First World War, away from Flanders fields to places like Gallipoli and beyond. And tantalisingly, some of her passengers on that fateful November morning in 1916 had also been on the Titanic. This is the story of the sinking of the Titanic sister ship, the Britannic. The Britannic was one of three superliners conceived by the owners of the White Star Line in the years just before World War I. First to be launched was the Olympic, followed by the far more famous Titanic. The Britannic was the last of the three, and her keel was laid in November 1911 at the Harland and Wharf shipyard in Belfast. Just four months later, the Titanic famously hit an iceberg on her maiden voyage and sank with the loss of 1,500 people. Included in that number was a steward, William or Bill Barrows, who was engaged to my great-great-aunt. Anyway, back to our story. The loss of the Titanic forced the designers and builders to relook at safety on the Britannic. A double-skinned hull was built around the boiler rooms and the watertight bulkheads were constructed higher up the ship than had been the case on the ill-fated Titanic. These improvements delayed construction, but finally, in February 1914, she was launched onto Belfast Loch. She then went into dry dock for her fit-out. The White Star Line intended to have her carrying passengers across the Atlantic in 1915. However, before that ever happened, Great Britain entered the First World War in August 1914. When the Britannic's fit-out was completed in the early autumn of 1915, there was scant civilian passenger demand for crossing the Atlantic. Indeed, it was a risky venture with German U-boat submarines lurking beneath the waves. Earlier that very year, one of her main rivals, the Cunard Line's Lusitania, had been sunk off the coast of Ireland with enormous loss of life. In fact, not far behind the losses on the Titanic. But the White Star Line didn't have to worry their little heads about what to do with their spanking new liner. Almost immediately, she was requisitioned by the British government. Most people in Britain nowadays think of the First World War as the, the mud, the trenches and the bloody stalemate on the Western Front. It's an image made popular in films ranging from Oh What a Lovely War right through to the recent 1917. But that neatly forgets that hundreds of thousands of British and Imperial troops fought vicious, bloody campaigns elsewhere too. The Middle East, Africa, Italy and possibly the nastiest and bloodiest of them all, Gallipoli. The Gallipoli campaign, famously championed by Winston Churchill, intended to land Allied forces on the Dardanelles Peninsula in modern-day Turkey, seize Constantinople and then knock Germany's ally, the Ottoman Empire, out of the war. However, since the first landings in April 1915, Gallipoli had turned into yet another bloody stalemate and the casualties were mounting rapidly. During the 10-month campaign, over 30,000 British and Dominion troops were killed and a further 78,000 were wounded. And it was to help transport those wounded back to Britain that the Britannic was required. Having been fitted out as a luxury liner, she was now converted into a giant hospital ship. She was repainted in white with a green horizontal line along her hull. Along each side of her hull, three large red crosses were painted in an attempt to identify her as a hospital ship 
to any German U-boat that might think about attacking. The first-class dining room and the reception room, similar to these rooms on her sister ship, the Olympic, were converted into operating theatres. The passenger decks became giant wards, with each cabin holding the wounded. All in all, the Britannic had the capacity to transport 3,300 patients, along with up to 500 medical staff and some 700 crew. On the 23rd of December 1915, the renamed HMHS, His Majesty's Hospital Ship, Britannic, set sail from Liverpool under the command of Captain Charles Bartlett. London-born Bartlett had joined the White Star Line back in 1894 and for the past 20 years he'd also been an officer in the Royal Naval Reserve. Arriving in the Aegean at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, she picked up a full complement of wounded passengers from the holding hospital on the island of Lemnos. The return journey was uneventful, and early in 1916, the Britannic arrived at Southampton, where most of her patients were transported to the nearby military hospital at Netsley. Netsley Hospital on the shores of the Solent has a fascinating story in its own right. Some of the defenders of Rourke's Drift received their Victoria Crosses from Queen Victoria whilst they were there convalescing. When it opened in 1863, this gigantic military hospital had 138 wards, and a thousand beds. Now, just to put that in some sort of perspective, Guy's Hospital in London currently has 400 bed capacity. Used in both world wars when its capacity was raised to over 2,000 patients, it fell into disrepair in the 1950s and was, apart from its chapel, destroyed by a fire in the 60s. Actually, I'm thinking about telling the story of Netley Hospital sometime, but it might be a bit niche, so maybe something for my supporters club. Having brought back another load of wounded passengers in April 1916, the Britannic was released from wartime duty in June. The White Star Line immediately set about converting her back into a luxury passenger liner, although quite frankly goodness knows who wanted to travel luxury across the Atlantic at that time. Just two months later, the Admiralty changed their mind and once more requisitioned the Britannic, paying the company compensation for the totally useless refurb that was almost at completion. Once more captained by Charles Bartlett, she would once more be heading to the Aegean in the Eastern Mediterranean. The difference was that this time, the wounded wouldn't be coming from Gallipoli. The campaign there had ended in January 1916, with the Allied forces being evacuated, having failed to knock Turkey out of the war. So, any idea where the wounded might be coming from? Well, I can't blame you if you don't know, it's one of the real forgotten sideshows of this war, the Salonika Front. Now, I haven't got time to go into detail, suffice to say that the British and French had landed in the Greek port of Salonika to open up a new front against the Central Powers and to support their ally, Serbia. Eventually, over 200,000 British troops would end up in this forgotten campaign, fighting the Germans, Austrians and Bulgarians. It was a campaign that would drag on to the end of the war in 1918. And despite this being a forgotten sideshow, the British were to suffer 26,000 casualties. So there was plenty of work for hospital ships like HMHS Britannic. Quickly, all the luxurious furnishings were removed and the ship was once more adapted into a floating military hospital. And the conversion was quick. Within a month, Britannic was heading off to the war zone. She arrived back with her wounded soldiers in October. With casualties mounting on the Salonika front, as much from disease as from enemy bullets, the Britannic set off again, leaving Southampton on the afternoon of the 12th of November, 1916. On board 
with 674 crew, 77 nurses, and 315 members of the Royal Army Medical Corps. The latter were under the command of Major Harold Priestley. Priestley had already had an interesting war. Captured by the Germans, he had successfully delivered the British POW camp at Wittenberg from Typhus and had been repatriated as a consequence by the Germans. Now, here he was on a hospital ship, heading for the Salonica front. Five days later, the Britannic reached Naples, where a storm delayed further progress for 48 hours. Finally, on the 19th of November, she departed on the last leg of her journey, once more heading for the island of Lemnos. Sailing through the Messina Strait, which separates mainland Italy from Sicily, and across the Ionian Sea, Captain Bartlett took the Britannic past Cape Matapan before turning north into the Aegean. On the morning of the 21st of November, she entered the Kia Channel, about 40 miles southeast of Athens. Just after 8am, 8.12am to be precise, whilst on the bridge of the ship, Bartlett heard a loud explosion from the starboard bow. He immediately sent a message that they'd been hit by a torpedo or they'd hit a sea mine. And at this stage he was unsure which it was, but reports coming in from his engineers told him it was serious. Very serious. The first five compartments had already flooded within minutes. Bartlett ordered the watertight doors to be closed. Sometimes Lady Luck has a cruel streak. One door would not close. Possibly it had buckled under the impact of the explosion. And it wasn't just any door. It was the crucial door between boiler rooms five and six. Boiler room six now started to flood. And even now, Bartlett held his nerve. The Titanic was designed to survive four compartments flooding, which hadn't worked. Due to the modifications afterwards made to the Britannic back at the Harland and Wharf shipyard, Bartlett's ship could stay afloat with six compartments flooded, which was exactly the situation he now found himself in. But there was an Achilles heel, and it was about to expose itself with fatal consequences. With the flooded compartments, the Britannic started to list to starboard, and in less than 15 minutes, the water was lapping at the portholes on E and F decks. Which wouldn't necessarily have been a problem if the medical staff hadn't opened them that morning to ventilate the wards that would soon be in use. The water poured through the open portholes, totally compromising the entire watertight compartment system. Realising that the ship would now sink, Bartlett decided to try to beach the Britannic on the island of Kia, which was about five miles away. He ordered the lifeboats, and unlike the Titanic, she did have enough for all of the people on the boat to be lowered. With the ship building some speed to try and get to the island, he ordered that the boat should be held in position about six feet above the sea, rather than being launched. However, the crews on some of the boats used the automatic lowering gear to drop into water just a few feet below. They weren't going down with a liner. But they had jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. As those boats bogged along the side of the sinking but still moving Britannic, their crews saw a nightmare vision in front of them. As the ship took on more water, her bow dipped further into the sea and her stern started to rise, exposing her still-turning propellers. Like an accident in slow motion, Bartlett and the passengers and the crew on board watched as those two tiny lifeboats drifted into the giant rotating propellers. The wooden boats and their crews were cut to pieces. Bartlett immediately ordered the engines to stop, which was just as well because a third lifeboat was now in the water and drifting towards the propellers too. 
In fact, the propellers finally stopped turning just as the little craft reached them, and the crew actually used their oars on the propellers to push themselves clear of the Britannic. At 8.35, with the mighty liner now stationary, Bartlett ordered Abandon Ship. It was just 23 minutes since the explosion. During the next half an hour, 35 lifeboats were lowered into the calmer GNC. Most of the medical staff and crew were able to get into them, but some were forced to jump and swim for it. Throughout this period, Captain Bartlett remained on the bridge, supervising the evacuation through a megaphone. Finally, with the ship sinking fast, he gave a final blast on the ship's whistle and stepped into the sea. It was 9.07am. It had taken less than an hour for the Britannic to follow her sister ship, the Titanic, to the seabed. But there were some differences between them. One, strangely, was that the Titanic had stayed afloat for three hours rather than the one hour managed by the Britannic. The other was the complete difference in loss of life. Of the 1,066 people on the Britannic, all bar 30 managed to be rescued. Just 21 crew, one officer and eight men of the Royal Army Medical Corps perished, mainly in those two lifeboats. Despite the speed of the sinking, the Britannic's distress calls had been picked up. Several local fishing boats were swiftly on the scene and they were followed by HMS Heroic and HMS Scourge. Two French tugs also arrived and between them they ferried the survivors to nearby Athens. Amongst the survivors was a nurse, Violet Jessup. Violet, who was born in Argentina, had amazingly survived the sinking of the Titanic just a few years beforehand too. And even more amazingly, today she was actually in one of those two lifeboats that hit the rotating propellers. But seeing the danger, she had dived overboard and swum like crazy. She was later picked up by another lifeboat. And Violet Jessup was not the only Titanic survivor on board HMHS Britannic that morning. 29-year-old stoker John Priest from Southampton managed to get out of the boiler rooms of both ships. He also survived the sinking of HMS Alcantara earlier that year. Also on board the Britannic on the 21st of November 1916 was Archie Jewell from the Cornish town of Bude. Back in 1912 on board the Titanic, he'd been on lookout duty on the very night of the disaster. His shift had ended at 10pm and an hour and a half later, the Titanic hit the iceberg. Now, just two weeks out from his 28th birthday, he was to survive the sinking of the Britannic too. After this latest survival, he left the White Star Line and signed on to another hospital ship, the SS Donegal. Unlike the blue waters of the Aegean, SS Donegal had a less sexy job of ploughing backwards and forwards across the English Channel, bringing the wounded back from the Western Front. And it was in April 1917, just five months after surviving the Britannic sinking, that Jewel was on the Donegal when it was attacked and sunk by a German U-boat. Jules' body was never found. It's a sad story. Although there is a slight happy ending. Would you believe that another one of the Britannic crew was on the Donegal and did survive? None other than John Priest, the stoker. Yes, having already survived three sinkings, he managed to survive that one too. Probably you won't be surprised to discover that he became known as the unsinkable stoker. After the war, he wound up back in his native Southampton. He didn't go to sea again. <laughs> he joked to his wife that it was because no one wanted to sail with him. But maybe he just thought he would get out whilst he was in front. He died in 1937 from pneumonia at the age of 49. 
Despite staying on the bridge as his ship sank, Captain Bartlett did not perish. He managed to swim to a lifeboat. He finally retired from the Merchant Navy in 1931 and died near Liverpool in 1945. The Britannic was the largest vessel sunk during the First World War. It was nearly 100 feet longer than the Lusitania. And she still lies on the floor of the Aegean, just 400 feet below the surface. Whilst listed as a war grave by the British and covered by very strict Greek antiquity laws, the wreck has been explored externally by some very high-profile underwater explorers. Those divers have all wanted to answer one question. What caused the explosion? Was it a mine? Or was it a torpedo? Some people on board later claimed that they saw torpedo tracks in the water. And certainly there was a German U-boat operating in these waters at that time. The U-73, under the command of Capitan Gustav Seiss, had left Croatia in October heading for Greek waters. Seiss never claimed to have fired on the Britannic. He did, however, claim he'd been laying mines in the area. And indeed, just the day before the Britannic sinking, two Greek ships had hit mines not far away from the Kia Channel. In the 1970s, French underwater explorer Jacques Cousteau dived to the wreck and claimed the damage was consistent with a torpedo. In the 1990s, the man who discovered the resting place of the Titanic, Dr Robert Ballard, also explored the Britannic, but he could find no conclusive proof either way. Finally, in 2003, a survey by Carl Spencer located mine anchors in the vicinity of the wreck. It seems that the Britannic was just one of many ships sunk by mines in World War I. Despite lying just 400 feet beneath the surface, the Britannic has disappeared from the public imagination. Unlike her older sister, lying at 12,500 feet below the Atlantic. In many ways, her passing, rather like the Salonica front, was a bit of a sideshow. I mean, only 30 people drowned, hardly the immense tragedy of the Titanic or the Lusitania. No notoriety of wounded soldiers drowning in a dastardly U-boat torpedo attack. No controversy as to what she was carrying in her hold, unlike the Lusitania. No sharks attacking survivors, or lifeboats bobbing in the mighty Atlantic for days on end. Just a big ship that had never carried any fare-paying passengers, hitting a mine and sinking the Aegean. And yet, the Britannic does have a story. It's a story of how British merchant vessels of all sizes supported the war effort in both world wars. It's a story about the wounded, as well as heroes. And it's a story that links survivors like Violet Jessup, John Priest and Archie Jewell directly to the Titanic. And in her own silent way, her story reminds us that the First World War was not just about the mud of Flanders fields. She connects us with some of our ancestors who fought a long, long way from home. Well, thanks for joining me today, and I hope that you enjoyed that story about the sinking of the Britannic. Drop me a line in the comments with your suggestions for future stories, maybe Gallipoli or the Salonica Front. And why not join my supporters club, where you can get my weekly newsletter and also a copy of my British History timeline. There's also an opportunity to join me for live discussions, where we go into more depth behind my talks, for instance, the story of Netley Hospital. You'll find a link in the description. Plenty more stories coming your way, but in the meantime, thanks for your support. Keep well, and I'll see you again very soon.